right, turn to Psalm, or rather Genesis 29. <laughs> you had already turned to the Psalter. Now let's turn to Genesis 29. Stephen read Psalm 121. Psalm, let me repeat a couple of verses. Psalm 121, verses 2 to 4. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you, that's the word I want you to see, keeps. He who keeps you or he who watches over you, he who oversees you, will not slumber. Behold, he who oversees Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Our Heavenly Father watches over his own. That ought to be a comforting thought to us tonight. He providentially guides us. He protects us. He cares for us. He preserves us. Uh, we should be encouraged by that. I know that life gets difficult, the circumstances get difficult in our lives, but he is actually guiding us through all the circumstances of our lives. He's at work even in the seemingly mundane activities that come our way. I know we don't see that readily on the surface, but scripture, the truth of the scripture is that he does that. So he oversees us. However, his oversight also includes the fact that he will deal with us when we stray from the path of holiness, when we engage in sinful activity, when we wrong, especially when we wrongfully treat others, the Lord will deal with us. Tonight's passage will teach us through the life of Jacob, and that's who we're talking about, Jacob, in Genesis 29, about both the Lord's oversight as well as the Lord's chastisement. First of all, the Lord's oversight in verses 1 through 14. Now, Genesis 29 naturally flows out of, chapter, of Genesis 25, Genesis 27, Genesis 28 in particular. You remember Jacob deceived his brother Esau in the matter of the birthright. That was in chapter 25. Uh, then Jacob and his mother Rebekah deceived their father Isaac in the matter of the blessing in chapter 27. As a result, Esau is hopping mad, very angry, and he wants to get revenge on his brother. He wants to, in fact, he wants to kill his brother. He's determining to kill his brother Jacob. So Rebekah tells Jacob to flee the area, get out of here, go back up north to where my relatives are, and you'll find a place of safety there. He's also told to marry a wife up there. Don't marry one of these Canaanite women around here, whatever you do. Go back up to my home, marry one of our relatives. So he begins the long 550-mile journey back home. Along the way, he has somewhat of a Paul on the road to Damascus experience uh, at Bethel. In Genesis chapter 28, he has a dream. And look at Genesis 28, verse 13. This is what the Lord tells him in the dream, Genesis 28, 13. And behold, the Lord stood above it, stood above the ladder. We're talking about Jacob's ladder, we call it, and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie. I'm going to give it to you and your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you. I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, and I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. This has to be, at this juncture of his life, has to be the greatest and highest moment that Jacob has encountered in all his life. And you can see that it is. Look at his reaction in verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. Now, Jacob's not wanting to talk about the Lord. He's wanting to deceive people. He's not wanting to talk about the Lord. He says, Surely the Lord is in this place. I didn't even know it. Verse 17, he was afraid, as he should have been before God. And he says, How awesome, how fearful is this place. 
This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. This is a spiritual wake-up call to Jacob. Finally, he, he, he's awakened spiritually. He's been sound asleep spiritually. Now he's awakened to God. Jacob's traveling alone on this long journey, yet now he knows he's not alone. God is with him. Keep that in mind. God has promised, how many times have we talked about this throughout Genesis so far? That God is with his people, always with his people. That's a, that's a great comfort. You as a believer, are, humanly speaking, are never alone. You may think you're alone. You're never alone because the Lord is with you wherever you go, as he is with all his people. Said again and again in the Old and New Testament. Now, we're talking about the Lord's oversight. And first of all, I want to see that in connection with the journey that Jacob is taking. In verse 1, look at verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the sons of the east. After the dream, the journey continues. Now, verse 1 in our English translations has a very vanilla way of saying this. It says, uh, then Jacob went on his journey. However, the Hebrew language is, is, is much more colorful, and it actually says this. Then Jacob lifted up his feet. He lifted up his feet and came to the land of the east. Now, our natural reaction is, well, of course he lifted up his feet. That's, how you, that's what you do when you walk. You have to take, lift up one foot at a time and take the step. But this phrase is very unique in that it's the only time it's ever mentioned in the Scripture just like this. Now, we've read phrases like this uh, typically in the Scriptures, like uh, when, when it says things like, he lifted up his eyes, he lifted up his voice and wept, things of that nature. This is the only time it says in the Scripture he lifted up his feet. Now, why would it say that? And I think the, the reason is because the revelation of God that he just experienced put a spring in his step, literally, and motivated him to, in a way that he was not motivated before. He was weighed down. I'm sure he was weighed down. Think about this. He's told to flee. Get out of here because your brother is going to kill you. There's this death threat hanging over his head. And then he's also probably homesick. This is the first time he's been away from who is mother, and in this respect, he is a mama's boy. People say he's a mama's boy. He is in this respect. He loves his mother. She loves him. He's the favorite. Now she's, he's away from her. I think he's homesick, and I believe there were many reasons the Lord appeared to him, but I believe the Lord's promises that come to him in this dream strengthen him and help him and encourage him. And as, as I said before, this is a thing we've seen several times in Genesis, and maybe God's trying to tell us something throughout this book. One thing he's trying to tell us is the Lord is with us. Now, Rebecca is the first one to say to him, flee and get out of here and go on the journey. But we find out as we look at these chapters, the Lord is really the one behind it. This isn't just a human plan. The Lord is in charge. Rebecca's not in charge. The Lord is. He makes that known to him. And his blessing, did you see all those verses, those promises? Of, of all people, he tells us to Jacob, who's been nothing but a deceiver and a cheat. And he says, my blessing is going to be upon you and your descendants. Great promises. Let's look at a word that's used twice in chapter 28. Look at verse 15. And it says there, I will keep you wherever you go. See where it says that in verse 15? I will keep you wherever you go. Verse 20, Jacob returns that statement and he says, if God will keep me on this journey. It's the same word, same word that comes from uh, Psalm 121 that he just read. And we read those, read those words about keeping, God keeping. The word keep here means to take care of. God's going to take care of his own. Preserve, uh, to protect, those kind of things. The emphasis is on God's oversight. God is overseeing Jacob. He cares for Jacob, the one who didn't care for anybody else. Jacob cared for one person, that's himself. Now God shows his care for him. 
That word is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to, for example, uh, in uh, 1 Samuel 17, 20, the word keep is used to describe a shepherd guiding his flocks and like, uh, like the Lord would guide his people. It's used uh, in Joshua 10, 18 to uh, describe a guard keeping watch. It's used in uh, 1 Samuel 26 to talk about a personal bodyguard who guards another. This is the word keep. And uh, that's why I'm calling this section the Lord's oversight. I don't mean the Lord overlooked something as if this is an oversight by the Lord. The Lord there's no oversight in that sense. He doesn't overlook anything. He, looks, he knows everything is going on. It, what I mean is he, the Lord is overseeing jo- Jacob on his journey. He's watching over Jacob on his journey. He's caring for him, preserving him, making sure he gets everything done that the Lord wants done. And remember that it said back in verse 15, I'm going to stay on this thing, the Lord says, until everything that I promise you comes true. So in verse 15, the Lord says, I am with you wherever you go. Wherever you go. He's on a journey right now. So that's part of where he's going he's to go on a journey. The Lord's going to be with him. Verse 20, Jacob says to the Lord, if God will keep me, Watch over me on this journey, this particular journey I'm on right now, then that's, 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 what I, that's what I need and want. And he will do that as he promised. The Lord is watching over Jacob on this journey. He makes sure that Jacob gets, arrives safely as destination. And then the next 13 verses describe how the Lord providentially leads Jacob in all the areas he wants to, how he directs his steps. Verse 1. He came to the land of the sons of the east. Now, the place Jacob was traveling to was called Haran. We've seen this already. The region is also called Paddan Aram, same area, mainly north of Beersheba, his starting point. Uh, But it's east. It's east of the Euphrates River. Um, That word east in in, uh, Genesis, we've talked about the word east in Genesis before. that usually signals something that's, that's not so pleasant. When you see that word east in Genesis, usually something not so pleasant is about to happen or already has happened. And I've gave, in the notes I have, by the way, tonight you have some references you can look up about the word east there. And sure enough, what lies ahead for Jacob is a time of trouble. It's not the time of Jacob's trouble. It is a time of Jacob's trouble. He's going to experience some problems along the way. He's going to endure his share of mis- his misery on this journey. Not to spiritualize the word east, it's just in Genesis that's what happens. It seems when one heads east, it's because of something bad that's already happened or something bad is going to happen, he's going to be in trouble in some way. But in God's providence, this is all taking place, he arrives safely at his his destination. He is on the journey, the Lord is overseeing him. Secondly, the Lord is overseeing him at a well. A well, look at verse 2. He looked and saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep were lying there beside it, for from that well they watered the flocks. Now the stone on the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, they would then roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place on the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. And he said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And here is Rachel, his daughter, coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it is still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered. What are the sheep and go and pasture them? But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered and they roll away the stone from the mouth of the well. Then then we'll water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. 
when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob went up and rolled the stone from the mouth of the well and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and lifted up his voice and wept. Jacob told Rachel that he was a son, he was a relative, rather, of her father, and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. Now, as we read Genesis 29, what are we reminded of? Genesis 24. We think of Genesis 24 when Abraham sent his servant to find a bride for Isaac uh, in the same basic location. But you have to keep in mind, that was probably 60 years ago at least. Maybe even 100 years ago. Nobody, there's all kinds of different guesses. It was years and years ago, a lot of time. So, same people are here, but doesn't mean everything is exactly as it was. I was talking to somebody the other day about Tampa, how much it's grown over the years, and how I can point back in my life to being an ancient Tampa native to the place called Granway on Hillsborough. Nobody knows what that is. doesn't exist. <laughs> hasn't existed for years. Things change over time. And, uh, and so I think, personally, this is a different well. They're at, just, it seems to be, have a different description of the, from the one in Genesis 24. You take all those years, 60 years ago, 100 years ago, whatever, things change. Now, let me tell you what's happening at the well is not all that exciting. We just read that, right? Is anybody excited about what's happening at the well? Uh, kings are not coming to battle, like you see in 1 and 2 Kings. Assyria is not attacking anybody, you know, like they, they are want to do in the Old Testament. David is not running from his life from anybody, as he does in 1 and 2 Samuel. But... Biblical truth is found even in a story not so exciting, you have to understand. Very important to read the Old Testament, by the way, as well as the New Testament. The stories in the Old Testament are designed, think about this, they're designed to reveal the truth about God and his ways and about man and his ways. Very important that you say, why are we reading all these stories in the Old Testament that are true, by the way? It's because it reveals truth about God and truth about us and truth about how we're to live. And this less than exciting setting will also reveal truth. What's the setting? Well, what you have here is a well with a large, heavy stone on top of it. Why is there a stone on top of it? Because water is precious, and they need to, to protect it. They can risk it. They can risk losing it. There's, can, migrants can come in and steal it. They can have animals that try to get into it. Uh, the evaporation of the, from the hot sun can, can mess it up. And so you have to protect it. So there's this large, heavy stone protecting the opening of the well. <clears throat> Jacob arrives in, in, uh, in town, or in the area there, in the field, it says, and three flocks of sheep are resting by, by it. And Jacob has to begin the conversation with these shepherds who are there because they don't, they, don't, they don't seem to be very talkative. They don't greet him or anything. He finds out that the shepherds are from, guess where? Haran. That's where he's interested in. Then he inquires about Laban. That's the brother of Rebekah, his mother. Do they know Laban? Why, yes, they do. How is he? Oh, he's doing fine, he's, they say. Now, that question probably wasn't just small talk. Think about this. They haven't seen this guy in years. And, you know, who even knows if Laban is actually alive? And, and let alone in good health. And then, for the first time, the shepherds volunteer some information. Verse 6. Look, there's Rachel. She is a daughter of Laban. She's bringing her sheep to the well. Now, you would think at this point that uh, Jacob's total focus would be on Rachel. That's, that's one of the daughters of Laban. Right now, he's going to focus on her totally, but no. He seems to be distracted by a shepherding issue. Wait a minute, there's a business problem I have to think about right now. Verse 7, he said to the shepherds, Behold, it is still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered. What are the sheep and go pasture them? 
Let me paraphrase what he's saying here. He's saying, there is tons of daylight left. Why, what are the sheep? And go out there and pasture them. Fatten them up. Why don't you guys do your, what are you guys doing hanging out at the well? It's too early to quit. It's not, it's not quitting time yet. Go back to work. Now, why is he saying this? Well, I think Jacob has experience with herding. I, I don't doubt it at all. We're going to find out in chapter 30. He's a, an expert in the field, as a matter of fact. I think this is what he did with his livelihood until now. So he's got this strong work ethic. And he doesn't understand, why are you guys stopping at midday to do from your job? So he gives them his opinion. They answer, well, it's not time to water the flock yet. We've got to wait for everybody else to get here, all the other shepherds and all the other flocks, and then we'll water the flock. You see, we have this large stone to move, and it's difficult. Well, while they're having that discussion, uh, Rachel shows up with her father's sheep, and we find out she's a shepherdess. It's at this time that Jacob zeroes in on Rachel, and when he sees her, he does something that's not typical. What does he do? He rolls away that large, heavy stone all by himself off this well. Now, that's quite a feat of strength. Typically, it took more than one shepherd to move it. As to how many men, I don't know. Many, much discussion has taken place over this. You know, when you, go, when you read these articles in seminary journal, journals, they have an article on just the stone, you know, a whole article on the stone for 30 pages that a guy rolled from a well, right, Dr. Martin? They'll have all these articles about everything. And so there's a big discussion about this, how many put men it took to, to, to move it. Some say it took several men, but the text only says, look at verse 3, they. When all the flocks were gathered there, they would roll the stone away. Verse 8, again, they rolled the stone from the well. So to roll the stone, to roll it, not to pick it up, to roll it suggests it was very heavy. That it says they had to roll it suggests it was very heavy. And it took more than one man. It doesn't say how many. Now, many commentators write that Jacob was possessed of Herculean strength. They'll use that phrase at this point. Like Hercules himself, he was able to do this unbelievable feat. I love Martin Luther's take on it, best of all, though. He said that the Holy Spirit rushed upon the patriarch. And that's how he was able to do this. Well, all these things are very interesting, but the text says none of this. I think it's more likely that Jacob was, number one, naturally strong because he was a hard worker had worked at herding all this time. But I think a greater motivation lie in the fact that he had family ties. His family ties were coming together here. Notice the phrase used three times in verse 10. Look at verse 10. It's the phrase, his mother's brother. Verse 10. When Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob went up and rolled the stone from the mouth of the well and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Now, there are modern translations that would say, well, this is redundant. We're not going to put this in three times. Let's just put it in one time. But it's there for a reason. It's trying to emphasize something. Laban is Jacob's uncle, which make, makes Rachel his first cousin. Jacob's mother, who told him to flee to Laban? His mother, chapter 27, verse 43. And then Re Rebecca tells Isaac, influences Isaac to tell Jacob to take a wife from where? Chapter 28, verse 2. From the daughters of Laban. Take a wife from uh, your, and, then he, and it says in there, your mother's brother in chapter 28 too. And we know how much Jacob loved his mother. I think that's there for a reason. Jacob is now meeting the daughters of Laban. So he's motivated by these family ties to do this. And then to cap it off, here's the real reason, I think. He's especially motivated by who? By Rachel. 
Look at, look at verse 10. When Jacob saw who? Rachel. Ah. Now he's fighting. The shepherding issue aside, business matters aside. Yeah, take care, take care of business first. Take care of business, right? Now he zeroes in on Rachel. And as one writer said, inspired by Rachel's presence, Jacob removed the stone, rolling it aside, and then drew water for her animals. I think this is also where he falls in love with uh, Rachel, personally. You can feel his motivation, his, his enthusiasm. Look at verse 11. Then Jacob did what? He kissed Rachel, and he lifted up his voice. He lifted up his feet in verse 1. Now he lifts up his voice, and this guy is going sky high here. In verse 11, and he weeps. You know, he's so overcome with emotion, he kisses Rachel, kisses her, and then he weeps. N notice he, by the way, notice he kisses Rachel before he introduces himself. Uh, verse 11 then he kissed Rachel, verse 12, Jacob told Rachel he was a relative of her father. Oh, by the way, I know I just kissed you. Now let me introduce myself. I'm Jacob. I'm a relative of yours. You know, the Abraham clan and all that, Rebecca and everything. Uh, but he's so overcome by emotion, I think. He does this act of chivalry. That's why I think he's able to move this larger-than-life stone by himself. He all, has all this adrenaline, motivation, all that. Again, though, our minds go back to what? Genesis 24, the chapter where Abraham is trying to, uh, Abraham's servant is getting a bride for Isaac. When, when, in that chapter, when Abraham's servant met Rebekah, what did Rebekah do? She watered all the ten camels. In this chapter, Jacob meets Rachel, and he waters Laban's flock. I think the Lord's overseeing all this. We'll, we'll talk about this in a second. Thirdly, the Lord's oversight in Laban's house. In Laban's house, verse 13, so when Laban heard the news of Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Then he related to Laban all these things. Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Uh, verse 13, when Laban hears that his sister's son is in town, he's as, mo as emotional as Jacob is. Look at, look at the four verbs uh, in verse 13 describing what happens here. He ran, Laban ran to meet Jacob, he embraced him, and he kissed him, and he brought him to the house. Jacob had kissed Rachel, and now, unfortunately for him, Laban kisses Jacob. That was traditional, by the way. Oh, listen, no more, by the way, I don't want any holy kisses in the church here. That happened one time, and I said, look, dude, I'm not going to participate in that, okay? Uh, handshake will be fine. That is traditional back then. It wasn't anything strange. In the, it's the way they greeted, greeted people. Uh, it was commonplace to do that. And guess what happens? Honey, do you have room in the house? We have a relative here. He's going to be here for about a month. <laughs> so he stays for a month, it says. All right, so here's the question. Why all these mundane details? You know, why? You know, Jacob meets some shepherds. Uh, he discusses about this, the, 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 the stone on the well becomes prominent in this story. Oh, there's a big stone there. Oh, we can't move the big stone. Jacob moves the big stone. We didn't think, you know, we have to wait to move the big stone. He does it himself. Why all this mundane, this act of chivalry, every, you know, meeting, everybody's in a kissing mood. So why all this? Why all this? I believe it's meant to tell us that the Lord has overseen this whole episode. He's guiding Jacob in all these little daily activities, seemingly mundane activities, a well, shepherds. Uh, a stone, all these things. Think about it. The Lord led Jacob to these shepherds at an unusual time. 
Why are they already at the well? I don't really fully know why they're at the well, but they're there. Jacob had just arrived, and technically they shouldn't be there, but he sees them there. They're able to point out, to tell him about Laban. Oh, yeah, that's who I'm trying to get a hold of. They're able to point out Rachel, one of the daughters of uh, his mother's brother, and who also comes early in the day, by the way. Why? And when Rachel, ta and Rachel takes her from there and tells her father, so what do we have here? We have the Lord's oversight unfolding the events of this day, the mundane events of this day. The Lord is seeing to it that his will is accomplished. Now, Calvin had an interesting statement here. He said this, This did not happen accidentally, but Jacob was guided by the hidden hand of God to that place. Jacob was guided by the hidden hand of God to that place. Now, Genesis, 4, uh, Genesis 24 rather, tells it differently. Several times, you remember when Abraham's servant was going to Haran and trying to get a bride for Isaac, and how many times does it say something like this? The Lord guided me. The Lord is guiding him. I being in the way the Lord led me, the servant says. This chapter doesn't say anything about, about God at all after uh, all these verses so far. It doesn't really say anything about God. Uh, it doesn't say that the Lord led Jacob anywhere, but it doesn't have to. It doesn't have to. Instead, we understand after the Lord's appearance in chapter 28 that God is leading him. He says, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to keep you. I'm going to oversee everything you're doing here. I'm going to watch over you. And then all of a sudden we got him going to a well and there's a large stone and there's shepherds and all this stuff. But God is working through all these circumstances. In chapter 29, it truly is, as Calvin says, the hidden hand of God at work. Now, we don't have to hear that truth shouted from the rooftops to understand it. It doesn't have to say it. Sometimes it says there's a comment by the Lord in a chapter in the Old Testament. Oh, when David, this, what David done had displeased the Lord, something like that. After all these circumstances. Not here. We don't have to see that all the time because we know this. The Lord is quietly working in the background the lives of his people. And that includes you. He's working in the background quietly in your lives we don't know exactly what's going on all the time. We don't know why we are where we are right now. We don't know all the, understand all the circumstances, but God knows, and he has a reason for it. Calvin goes on to make an application, by the way. Yes, Calvin applied the scripture as well. He says this, Therefore, whenever we may wonder in uncertainty, whenever we may wonder in uncertainty, we must contemplate with the eyes of faith the secret providence of God, which governs us in our affairs and leads us to unexpected results. In other words, we may not know what's going on in our lives, but God knows. He knows, and he is working in our everyday mundane affairs. We don't, we don't know how the Lord's going to work. We, we don't know what he has in store for us. As we work through another routine day, the, the affairs of a routine day, and yet we must remember this. We're under the Lord's oversight. Always remember, I know this is, I've got to remember it too. We're under the Lord's oversight, and what better place is there to be? You say, but you don't understand what I'm facing right now. I say it again, and, and look, I, I could, it's easy for me to say right now. Maybe tomorrow won't be easy for me to say. What better place is there to be than under the Lord's oversight? Secondly, the Lord's chastisement, verses 15 to 30. By chastisement, I mean the Lord's uh, discipline of us, we might call it a spanking even, of his people, and that's done in love. And in this section, we will start with labor negotiations. 
What does that got to do with the Lord's chastisement? Oh, labor negotiations always end up in the Lord's chastisement. Verses 15 and 20. Look at verse 15 and 20. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my relative. Oh, we're, we're kissing cousins here. Kissing cousin and uncle, at least, or uncle and nephew. Because you are my relative, therefore, you, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful, a form and face. Now, Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to give her to another man, so stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Now, we have not been properly introduced to Laban, Jacob's uncle. Uh, Laban, Uncle Laban is a wily individual. You're going to find out. He's a guy who plays mind games with people, just like his sister Rebecca did. She did the same type things. I guess it runs in the family. The truth of the matter is, Laban is a man after Jacob's own heart. He really is. Only Laban can, can Laban will beat Jacob at his own game. He's better than, than Jacob. I, I read a quote by Charles Spurgeon, the British pastor in England, who said this, if you spell Laban's name backwards, you get Nabal, which is very interesting. Uh, does anybody remember that guy, 1 Samuel 25? Uh, his, name is, his name means fool. His wife said of him, even his wife said of him, 1 Samuel 25, of Nabal, she said, as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. Wow. Have your wife say that about you, it would be detrimental to your marriage. His life was going to end pretty soon anyway. But Spurgeon said, there is not a great deal of difference between the two men, Jacob and Laban, for they were both of an arrogant disposition. Trust me when I say that Laban will not be your favorite Bible character. He won't be. Now, this negotiation sounds like it's going to go in Jacob's favor. Look at verse 15. Laban says to Jacob, because you are my relative, why should you serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now, who would like to have a boss like that? A boss who says, name your wages, name your price. I'll pay you whatever you say. What would you answer? How would you answer that? I know what I would answer. I'll take a million dollars. That's what I would say. It's like the guys in the Esther and places where they say, I'll give you half my kingdom. And they ask for somebody to die or something. I would say, give me half your kingdom. But they say, he says, uh, name your wages. Jacob knew exactly what he was going to ask for. He was willing to work a total of seven years in exchange for the hand of Rachel in marriage. That's quite a proposal. Now, a little background. Laban has two daughters. We already met Rachel at the well, and we know she's the, now we know she's the younger daughter. Leah's the older daughter. Already we're beginning to see something develop. Sounds a lot like two brothers we just read about, Jacob and Esau, in which the emphasis was on Jacob as the younger brother, Esau as the older brother. Then there's a contrast between physical appearances of the two daughters. Verse 17, Leah's eyes are weak, it says. That's a word not easily defined. It's, it's, it does not mean she had poor vision, by the way. It's used, it can be used in a positive or negative sense. If you use it in a positive sense, it can be translated tender. If that's the case, the Bible is describing the positive attributes of each woman, Leah's eyes and Rachel's form. All right? If it's used in a negative sense, it can mean that her eyes are dull and lackluster. And in the ancient Near East, if you wanted to make an appeal to, to a man, 
your eyes needed to be sparkling and full of luster. Now, whichever is the case, there's a contrast between, between the two with Rachel being presented as the most beautiful of the two. That's definite. That's obvious. It says that. But why is Jacob making such a generous offer? Why is he saying he's going to work for seven years? Think about that. I'll work for seven years. That's your offer? Seven years? Why didn't he say I'll work for one year or two years? Well, I think maybe a couple reasons. First of all, he had to pay the dowry. Uh, his mother and father weren't there. They were 550 miles away. And uh, he, had to do, he himself had to do that. could also be that Jacob is making an offer that Laban can't resist. Why would any employer turn that down? Another thing Laban knows. Laban knows that Jacob is in love with Rachel. And that he's gonna, that's going to work to his advantage, to Laban's advantage. So look at verse 19. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to give her to another man. So stay with me. Work for me. I'm going to be your boss. And I'm going to, this is going to be great. We're going to have a great employee-employer relationship here. Jacob's love for Rachel mentioned twice here makes the time fly by. Now don't forget the word of Rebecca in chapter 27, or rather chapter 28, verse 44. She said to Jacob, go to my brother Laban and stay with him for how long? A few days. Stay with him a few days. Now, at this point, that's turned into seven years. She's already wrong. That's negotiations. And then secondly, a wedding surprise. Look at verse 21. Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife, for my time is completed that, that I may go into her. Laban gathered all the men of the place and, she, and made a feast. Now, in the evening, she, he took the daughter, his daughter Leah and brought her to him, and Jacob went into her Laban also gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came about in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served with you? Why then have you deceived me? Now, verse 21, Jacob comes across as very impatient. He says, give me my wife. He doesn't say, give me, my, give me your daughter to be my wife. He doesn't say that. This could be the case of, like uh, Mary and Joseph in Matthew 1, where they are considered married, but yet not, the marriage hasn't consummated. Now Jacob says in no uncertain terms of Laban, I want to consummate the marriage. So this is a demand he's making, not a request. He says in the form of a command, give me my wife. And I'm not kidding around. <laughs> after seven years, my guess is after seven years, he's beginning to understand who Laban is. This guy who's... He can't trust necessarily, and it may be that Laban was trying to delay the wedding anyway, as long as possible. So Laban complies. He prepares a feast. Now, uh, the Hebrew dictionary defines this feast as a banquet with wine. And when it's evening, it, it was evening, when it was evening, rather, and begin, it was being, beginning, beginning to get dark, Laban pulls a Jacob. He substitutes Leah for Rachel. He even escorts Leah to Rachel, to Jacob, rather. And he gives Leah a maid, and it all looks great on the surface. Everything is as it should be. Nobody knows it any different at all. Some people know the difference, actually. But when the rays of the sun start in the light in the next, the next morning, Jacob is in the shock of his life. <laughs> the woman he has been with all night is not his beloved Rachel, but rather it's, his, it's her sister, Leah. That shock is captured in verse 25 when it says, Behold, it was Leah. That's designed to shock us. 
It certainly shocked him. If it doesn't shock us, it shocked him. Trust me on that one. I can only imagine how surprised he was, how angry. Think about this. How furious. How startled. How frustrated. How disheartened he must have been. And he doesn't waste any time in confronting Laban. He goes right to him and directs three questions. Verse 25. What is this that you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel I served you? Why then have you deceived me? Two of these questions show exactly where his frustration really lies. What is this that you have done to me? Why then have you deceived me? Yes, it's true. Jacob's deeply hurt. And, the, and the, the pay, it, was, it was directed at him. Laban had hurt him. But think about this. What about Rachel? So this is not only about Jacob. This is about everybody else. This cast, cast of characters here. What about Rachel? Her father obviously told her, hey, look, I got a plan going. You're not a part of it. Keep your mouth shut. And, or it wouldn't have worked. Rachel says, doesn't say a word at all. She goes along with the whole plan. I'm sure she wasn't happy about it. What about Leah? How does she feel? She's the main actor. Does she want to go along with this dastardly plan? Does she really want to do this to her sister? What about Zilpah, the maid? Like everyone else, she's probably aware of the fact that Jacob does love Rachel. Supposed to be marrying Rachel, not Leah. She doesn't say anything. What about Laban's wife? If she's still alive, and I think she is. What does she think about all this? This is my daughter. We're playing with her life here. What are you talking about? None of this is said. What about Laban himself? Has he no conscience at all? That he's able to do this? Uh, he's dragged a whole lot of people into this episode with him. As for the question you all have in your minds, I know what you're all thinking, by the way. How did Leah fool Jacob that night? How did she do that on the wedding night? Well, there's several suggestions. First of all, it was dark, really dark. I don't know if you've ever been in a really, really dark place. One time I was in West Africa at night, Jimmy. He went to West Africa, and uh, it was pitch black over there, and we couldn't see anything. Really, really dark. No electricity here at all. So that was one factor. Secondly, Jacob has no reason to suspect this would happen. Why would he think about, oh, what if Laban pulls a trick on me and substitutes Leah? He doesn't think about that at all. Why would he think about that? Thirdly, in all likelihood, Leah wore a veil, so that would be a covering. Fourthly, it's been suggested, this is pretty weak, <laughs> Leah may have whispered instead of talking like normal to give away her voice. Remember, uh, you remember Jacob almost blew his cover with Isaac because his voice was giving him away, and Isaac said, the voice is Jacob's, but the, the hands are Esau's. Maybe that happened. Uh, fifthly, Jacob was blinded by love. All these things work together to complicate the issue. But I think the main reason is this. I think it had to do with wine at the banquet. Yeah, everybody's saying no, that's what it was. Jacob, was. Jacob was probably drunk, in all likelihood. I'm pretty sure he was drunk. I'm going to say emphatically he was drunk. Think back to Genesis 19. Think about that issue where Lot's two daughters with their father, father and they said, Hey, we, there's not a man on the earth that we can come in contact with. Apparently, I don't know if they thought the whole world was destroyed after Sodom and Gomorrah went up and spoke or what they thought. I have no idea, although they, they knew better than that. Let's get pregnant by our father. What we're going to do is we're going to him, make him drunk with wine. And on success, and that's what the scripture says. Now, what, what is going on behind everybody's thinking and all, I don't know. That's what the scripture says. They made their father drunk, and it worked. And whatever factors... Uh, and I think this is the main reason. 
But whatever factors were involved in all this on the wedding night, that special wedding night for Jacob, the bottom line is this. Jacob, the, the deceiver, has himself been deceived, been beaten at his own game. There's nothing Jacob can do other than go to his father-in-law and say, why have you deceived me? How could you do such a thing? How could you do this to me? But what do we, what do we as the readers of, of the text think? Well, we think back to Genesis 27, 35, when Isaac said to Esau, your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. He's a deceiver. And Esau said, my brother's a deceiver in the same chapter. They all knew it. Now, the text here in Genesis 29 doesn't give an explanatory note. It doesn't say, uh, well, you see, Jacob is reaping what he sowed here. It doesn't say that. But we all know exactly, that's, that's exactly what happened. This is the Lord's chastisement of Jacob, told in a story form, as the Old Testament often does, without a bunch of explanation. And we get it. We get the picture. And the way it came about so similar to how Jacob had deceived, deceived Isaac, think about this. Jacob had pretended to be Esau, just as Leah pretended to be Rachel. Jacob pretended to be the older brother, while Leah pretended to be the younger sister. Laban, the deceiver, uh, Laban rather planned to deceive Jacob, just like Rebekah planned to deceive Isaac, her husband. All these things working and so, showing us again and again, hey, this is, remember all this happened? Now it's happening to you. And worst of all, Laban uses his own daughters to accomplish this, all this. What kind of a father is this guy? We've seen some characters in Genesis, haven't we? We've seen some really bad guys. Jacob was deceived by a better deceiver than himself. He met his match. Uh, Laban was truly a man after Jacob's own heart. There's no doubt about it at all. At an advanced level, though. Advanced level. And now it's his turn. It's Jacob's turn to feel the pain Esau felt. It's his turn to feel the shame his father felt after Jacob shamed his father by lying to him and deceiving him. He is feeling the pain right now. But Jacob is not, Laban is not done yet. No, J Laban takes it another level. Look at verse 26. Laban said, it is not the practice, after Jacob is all mad and angry and asking these questions, why did you do this to me? It's not the practice of our, in our place to hurt Mary off the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other. Also for the service which you shall serve with me for another seven years. This guy is cold. <laughs> he is cold as ice. Laban claims there's a custom. Oh, we have a custom in our land. In our, I don't know about you guys down south in Beersheba, but in our, in our part of the country up north, we have a custom. And that is this, the older child must be married before a younger one. He says it in a way as almost to rebuke Jacob. He does, there's no apology here. Oh, forgive me for deceiving you. None, none of that at all. He still has a plan to enact. But if this is really true, why didn't he inform Jacob before all this happened? Why did he do all this? Look at verse 19 again. Uh, Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to another man. No, I don't think it is, uh, Laban. I don't think that's what your plan is. It just shows you how, how much of a scammer this guy was. So Laban has a new proposal. Complete the week of this one. Now, when a couple was married, uh, at that time they had a celebration for a week. Seven days, a whole week. Uh, Jacob is instructed to observe the celebration that he just married Leah for a whole week. Seven days I'm talking about here. And then, look at verse uh, 27. We, we're going to give you the other one. We will give you the other. We, I, I guess that's his wife, him and his wife. I don't know who else it would be. Then we'll give you Rachel. As if his wife hadn't, you know, usually in a marriage, women have, they're running the show, right? 
Uh, boy, I just thought about a bunch of stuff in weddings I've seen that, yeah, women are definitely running the show, right? Uh, what do you want? The woman answers that question. I want flowers. I want this. I want that. Or I don't want this. That's fine. That's just, we, we all understand that. It's fine. It's, that it's that way. It's okay. That's just how it is, though. Uh, but where's the wife of uh, Laban at? Nowhere involved at all. Laban's running this marriage. He's running the whole show. We're going to give you Rachel if you'll do this. So here's the order, by the way. I know we think that, I know it seems like uh, Jacob worked for seven years and then he got Rachel. But the order, according to this scripture, is this. And by the way, even in the MacArthur Study Bible, you'll see a note to this effect. This celebration, uh, here's the order. Celebrate your marriage to Leah for seven days, seven-day week. Then you marry Rachel the next week. Then you serve for seven years as the price for marrying Rachel. That's the order, and that's what, that's what it's saying. And Rebecca is promised that the older would serve the younger. Remember that? Rebecca had that pro prophecy. She, the older is going to serve the younger. Now Jacob becomes a servant. He's the servant of Laban. Not for seven years, but for, for 14 years. So, uh, so Laban gets service for free for 14 years as far as money is concerned. I think, personally, I think Laban had this figured out from the beginning. I think this is the master deceiver right here. Uh, kind of reminds me of another master deceiver who's better than Laban, and that's Satan. But I don't know about Laban's relationship to the Lord at this point. But both Rebecca, well, actually I do, both Rebecca and Jacob put together, put together cannot outscam this guy. Verses 28 to 30, look at verse 28. Uh, Jacob did so and completed her week, and he gave him his daughter Rachel as his wife. So Laban also gave his maid Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her maid. So Jacob went into Rachel also. Indeed, he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban for another seven years. Now, must have been very strange to have two sisters back-to-back -back marrying the same guy. I don't know what the people thought about that back then. That, that wedding ceremony, very strange, because in later on in Leviticus, now this hasn't been instituted yet, Le Leviticus 18.18, 18, you shall not marry a woman in addition to her sister, it says. That's going to take place later. What's the lesson of all this, of all this mess that's going on? Here's the lesson. We might, we, we might forget about our past unresolved sins. We might sweep them under the rug we might put them away. We might not, might not repent of them, but the Lord will not forget about it. He's not going to forget. He may not chastise us right away either. He may wait for the right moment. He may wait for seven years or more or less, um, like he did with Jacob. The Lord is patient. But know this, the Lord will chastise his sitting children at some time. He won't forget. He won't forget. Laban gets 14 years out of, of labor out of uh, Jacob, he gets both of his daughters married off. Jacob's dream of marrying Rachel alone is wiped out. You know, the Bible teaches in many places that we, will, that we must repent of our sins. As we all know, we, again and again it says that. Uh, we can't pretend that it didn't happen, you know. We do something to wrong somebody, for example, back in the past maybe even, or recently. We can't, we can't pretend it didn't happen. The scriptures say all over the place, Warnings to this effect, for example, Numbers 32, 23 says, Be sure your sin will find you out, as I talked about D.L. Moody preaching the sermon, God's Detective. Here's the text. Be sure your sin will find you out. It will. Proverbs 22, 18, He who, he who sows iniquity will reap vanity. Hosea 8, 7, Sow the wind, and you'll reap the whirlwind. Hosea 10, 13, 
the people had plowed, that had plowed wickedness, the people had plowed wickedness in this chapter, and as a result, they would, they would reap injustice. Plowed wickedness, and they'd reap injustice as a result. Galatians 6, 7. Do not deceive, or do not be deceived. Interesting it says the word deceive. God is not mocked. For whatsoever, whatever a person sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. We reap what we sow, good or bad. We even talk about what? The law of sowing and reaping, we call it. But here's the paradox of all this. The Lord Jesus took upon himself all the sins of the deceiver, all the deceivers and liars throughout history, including myself, by the way. And he bore the brunt uh, of, of all this. He bore the brunt of reaping what he did not sow. He sowed no sin, and yet he bears the brunt of reaping all that sinful wrath of God. He bears the wrath of God. He did that for scammers because of his great love for scammers and liars and cheats and crooks and ripoff artists and all those kind of people like me throughout history. Even some of those people sitting in the pews of the Church of Corinth used to be formerly what? Swindlers. They were swindlers. But God saved them. God can save even the swindler. God can work and, and, and do his will and save people who are deceivers. So, the Lord does exercise oversight of his people. He watches over us with a loving providence. We don't understand everything. I get it. I don't understand everything either. The older I get, the less I understand, quite honestly, about what's going on around me. But the Lord understands, and we trust his loving providence. But he will not hesitate to chastise those who stop pursuing holiness, his own people, and, start, and those who start pursuing sin. He doesn't do that because we're under the same judgment as the world. That's not what's happening here. But because Christ wants his people to be holy, he's conforming us to his image. He wants his people not to be deceitful, to also live by the truth. Thank God that he does oversee us. That he does oversee us. Thank God that he does correct us when we go astray. He's our Heavenly Father, and he knows what's best. Let's trust him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, again, we're grateful for your word, grateful for what it teaches. Father, we are all prone to all kinds of sin. We know that the Lord has saved us, though, and the Holy Spirit works in our hearts and, and promotes holiness and we pray, Lord, that we will follow you. God, give us the grace uh, and the power of the Spirit to live a holy life, to honor you in all that we do, to speak the truth in love, to be truthful people, to be truthful about everything we do, and to be your testimonies. We praise in Christ's name. Amen.